Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton. Read by Martin Clifton. Chapter 3. The Jewel of Dr. Hirsch. Monsieur Maurice Brun and Monsieur Armand Armagnac were crossing the sunlit Champs-Élysées with a kind of vivacious respectability. They were both short, brisk, and bold. They both had black beards that did not seem to belong to their faces, after the strange French fashion which makes real hair look like artificial. Monsieur Brun had a dark wedge of beard apparently affixed under his lower lip. Monsieur Armagnac, by way of a change, had two beards, one sticking out from each corner of his emphatic chin. They were both young. They were both atheists, with a depressing fixity of outlook, but great mobility of exposition. They were both pupils of the great Dr. Hirsch, scientist, publicist, and moralist. Monsieur Brun had become prominent by his proposal that the common expression adieu should be obliterated from all the French classics, and a slight fine imposed for its use in private life. Then, he said, the very name of your imagined God will have echoed for the last time in the ear of man. Monsieur Armagnac specialised rather in a resistance to militarism, and wished the chorus of the Marseillaise altered from aux armes citoyennes to aux grèves citoyennes. But his anti-militarism was of a peculiar and Gallic sort. An eminent and very wealthy English Quaker who had come to see him to arrange for the disarmament of the whole planet, was rather distressed by Armagnac's proposal that, by way of a beginning, the soldiers should shoot their officers. And, indeed, it was in this regard that the two men differed most from their leader and father in philosophy. Dr. Hirsch, though born in France and covered with the most triumphant favours of French education, was temperamentally of another type, mild, dreamy, humane, and, despite his sceptical system, not devoid of transcendentalism. He was, in short, more like a German than a Frenchman. And, much as they admired him, something in the subconsciousness of these Gauls was irritated at his pleading for peace in so peaceful a manner. To their party throughout Europe, however, Paul Hirsch was a saint of science. His large and daring cosmic theories advertised his austere life and innocent, if somewhat frigid, morality. He held something of the position of Darwin, doubled with the position of Tolstoy. But he was neither an anarchist nor an anti-patriot. His views on disarmament were moderate and evolutionary. The Republican government put considerable confidence in as to various chemical improvements, he had lately even discovered a noiseless explosive, the secret of which the government was carefully guarding. His house stood in a handsome street near the Elysee, a street which in that strong summer seemed almost as full of foliage as the park itself. A row of chestnuts shattered the sunshine, interrupted only in one place where a large café ran out into the street. Almost opposite to this were the white and green blinds of the great scientist's house, 
an iron balcony also painted green running along in front of the first-floor windows. Beneath this was the entrance into a kind of court, gay with shrubs and tiles, into which the two Frenchmen passed in animated talk. The door was opened to them by the doctor's old servant, Simon, who might very well have passed for a doctor himself, having a strict suit of black, spectacles, grey hair, and a confidential manner. In fact, he was a far more presentable man of science than his master, Dr. Hirsch, who was a forked radish of a fellow, with just enough bulb of a head to make his body insignificant. With all the gravity of a great physician handling a prescription, Simon handed a letter to Monsieur Armagnac. That gentleman ripped it up with a racial impatience, and rapidly read the following. I cannot come down to speak to you. There is a man in this house whom I refuse to meet. He is a chauvinist officer, Duboche. He is sitting on the stairs. He has been kicking the furniture about in all the other rooms. I have locked myself in my study, opposite that café. If you love me, go over to the café and wait at one of the tables outside. I will try to send him over to you. I want you to answer him and deal with him. I cannot meet him myself. I cannot. I will not. There is going to be another Dreyfus case. Signed, P. Hirsch. Monsieur Armagnac looked at Monsieur Brun. Mr. Brun borrowed the letter, read it, and looked at Monsieur Armagnac. Then both betook themselves briskly to one of the little tables under the chestnuts opposite, where they procured two tall glasses of horrible green absinthe, which they could drink apparently in any weather and at any time. Otherwise the café seemed empty, except for one soldier drinking coffee at one table, and at another a large man drinking a small syrup, and a priest drinking nothing. Maurice Brun cleared his throat and said, Of course we must help the master in every way, but... There was an abrupt silence, and Armagnac said, He may have excellent reasons for not meeting the man himself, but... Before either could complete a sentence, it was evident that the invader had been expelled from the house opposite. The shrubs under the archway swayed and burst apart, as that unwelcome guest was shot out of them like a cannonball. He was a sturdy figure in a small and tilted Tyrolean felt hat, a figure that had indeed something generally Tyrolean about it. The man's shoulders were big and broad, but his legs were neat and active, in knee-breeches and knitted stockings. His face was brown like a nut. He had very bright and restless brown eyes. His dark hair was brushed back stiffly in front and cropped close behind, outlining a square and powerful skull. And he had a huge black moustache like the horns of a bison. Such a substantial head is generally based on a bull neck, but this was hidden by a big coloured scarf, swathed round up the man's ears, and falling in front inside his jacket like a sort of fancy waistcoat. It was a scarf of strong dead colours, dark red, old gold, and purple, probably of oriental fabrication. Altogether the man had something a shade barbaric about him, more like a Hungarian squire than an ordinary French officer. His French, however, was obviously that of a native and his French patriotism was so impulsive as to be slightly absurd. His first act, when he burst out of the archway, was to call in a clarion voice down the street, Are there any Frenchmen here? As if he were calling for Christians in Mecca. Armagnac and Brun 
instantly stood up, but they were too late. Men were already running from the street corners. There was a small but ever clustering crowd. With the prompt French instinct for the politics of the street, the man with the black moustache had already run across to a corner of the café, sprung on one of the tables, and seizing a branch of chestnut to steady himself, shouted as Camille Desmoulins once shouted when he scattered the oak leaves among the populace. Frenchman, he volleyed, I cannot speak. God help me, that is why I am speaking. The fellows in their filthy parliament who learn to speak also learn to be silent, silent as that spy cowering in the house opposite, silent as he is when I beat on his bedroom door, silent as he is now, though he hears my voice across this street and shakes where he sits. Oh, they can be silent eloquently, the politicians, but the time has come when we that cannot speak must speak. You are betrayed to the Prussians, betrayed at this moment, betrayed by that man. I am Jules Dubosc, Colonel of Artillery, Belfort. We caught a German spy in Vosges yesterday, and a paper was found on him, a paper I hold in my hand. Oh, they tried to hush it up. But I took it direct to the man who wrote it, the man in that house. It is in his hand, it is signed with his initials, it is a direction for finding the secret of this new noiseless powder. Hirsch invented it. Hirsch wrote this note about it. The note is in German, and was found in a German's pocket. Tell the man, the formula for powder is in grey envelope in first drawer to the left of the secretary's desk, war office, in red ink. He must be careful. P.H. He rattled short sentences like a quick-firing gun, but he was plainly the sort of man who is either mad or right. The mass of the crowd was nationalist and already in threatening uproar, and a minority of equally angry intellectuals led by Armagnac and Brun only made the matter more militant. "'If this is a military secret,' shouted Brun, "'why do you yell about it in the street?' "'I will tell you why I do,' roared Dubosc above the roaring crowd. "'I went to this man in a straight and civil style. If he had any explanation, it could have been given in complete confidence. He refuses to explain.' He refers me to two strangers in a café as to two flunkies. He has thrown me out of the house, but I am going back into it with the people of Paris behind me. A shout seemed to shake the very façade of mansions, and two stones flew, one breaking a window above the balcony. The indignant colonel plunged once more under the archway, and was heard crying and thundering inside. Every instant the human sea grew wider and wider. It surged up against the rails and steps of the traitor's house. It was already certain that the place would be burst into like the Bastille when the broken French window opened and Dr. Hirsch came out on the balcony. For an instant the fury half turned to laughter, for he was an absurd figure in such a scene. His long bare neck and sloping shoulders were the shape of a champagne bottle but that was the only festive thing about him. His coat hung on him as on a peg, he wore his carrot-coloured hair long and weedy, his cheeks and chin were fully fringed with one of those irritating beards that begin far from the mouth. He was very pale, and he wore blue spectacles. Livid as he was, he spoke with a sort of prim decision, so that the mob fell silent in the middle of his third sentence. Only two things to say to you now. The first is to my foes, the second to my friends. To my foes, I say, 
It is true I will not meet Monsieur Dubosc, though he is storming outside this very room. It is true I have asked for two other men to confront him for me, and I will tell you why. Because I will not and must not see him, because it would be against all rules of dignity and honour to see him. Before I am triumphantly cleared before a court, there is another arbitration this gentleman owes me as a gentleman. And in referring him to my seconds, I am strictly... Armagnac and Broom were waving their hats wildly, and even the doctor's enemies roared applause at this unexpected defiance. Once more a few sentences were inaudible, but they could hear him say, To my friends, I myself should always prefer weapons purely intellectual, and to these an evolved humanity will certainly confine itself. But our own most precious truth is the fundamental force of matter and heredity. My books are successful, my theories are unrefuted, but I suffer in politics from a prejudice almost physical in the French. I cannot speak like Clemenceau and Deroulède, for their words are like echoes of their pistols. The French ask for a duelist as the English ask for a sportsman. Well, I give my proofs. I will pay this barbaric bribe, and then go back to reason for the rest of my life. Two men were instantly found in the crowd itself to offer their services to Colonel Dubosc, who came out presently, satisfied. One was the common soldier with the coffee, who said simply, I will act for you, sir, I am the Duc de Vallon. The other was the big man, whom his friend the priest sought at first to dissuade, and then walked away alone. In the early evening a light dinner was spread at the back of the Café Charlemagne. Though unroofed by any glass or gilt plaster, the guests were nearly all under a delicate and irregular roof of leaves. For the ornamental trees stood so thick around and among the tables as to give something of the dimness and dazzle of a small orchard. At one of the central tables a very stumpy little priest sat in complete solitude and applied himself to a pile of whitebait with the gravest sort of enjoyment. His daily living being very plain, he had a peculiar taste for sudden and isolated luxuries. He was an abstemious epicure. He did not lift his eyes from his plate, round which red pepper, lemons, brown bread and butter, etc., were rigidly ranked, until a tall shadow fell across the table, and his friend Flambeau sat down opposite. Flambeau was gloomy. "'I'm afraid I must chuck this business,' he said heavily. "'I'm all on the side of the French soldiers like Dubosc and I'm all against the French atheists like Hirsch, but it seems to me in this case we've made a mistake. The Duke and I thought it as well to investigate the charge, and I must say I'm glad we did. Is the paper a forgery, then? asked the priest. That's just the odd thing, replied Flambeau. It's exactly like Hirsch's writing, and nobody can point out any mistake in it. But it wasn't written by Hirsch. If he's a French patriot, he didn't write it, because it gives information to Germany. And if he's a German spy, he didn't write it, well, because it doesn't give information to Germany. You mean the information is wrong? asked Father Brown. Wrong, replied the other, and wrong exactly where Dr. Hirsch would have been right. About the hiding place of his own secret formula in his own official department. By favour of Hirsch and the authorities, the Duke and I have actually been allowed to inspect the secret drawer at the War Office where the Hirsch formula is kept. We are the only people who have ever known it, except the inventor himself and the Minister for War. 
but the minister permitted it to save Hirsch from fighting. After that we really can't support Dubosch if his revelation is a mare's nest. And it is? asked Father Brown. It is, said his friend gloomily. It is a clumsy forgery by somebody who knew nothing of the real hiding place. It says the paper is in the cupboard on the right of the secretary's desk. As a fact, the cupboard with the secret drawer is some way to the left of the desk. It says the grey envelope contains a long document written in red ink. It isn't written in red ink, but in ordinary black ink. It is manifestly absurd to say that Hirsch can have made a mistake about a paper that nobody knew of but himself, or can have tried to help a foreign thief by telling him to fumble in the wrong drawer. I think we must chuck it up and apologise to old carrots. Father Brown seemed to cogitate. He lifted a little white bait on his fork. "'You're sure the grey envelope was in the left cupboard?' he asked. "'Positive,' replied Flambeau. "'The grey envelope—it was a white envelope, really—was—' Father Brown put down the small silver fish and the fork and stared across at his companion. "'What?' he asked, in an altered voice. "'Well, what?' replied Flambeau, eating heartily. "'It was not grey,' said the priest. "'Flambeau—' You frighten me. What the deuce are you frightened of? I'm frightened of a white envelope, said the other seriously. If it had only just been grey, hang it all, it might as well have been grey. But if it was white, the whole business is black. The doctor has been dabbling in some of the old brimstone after all. "'But I tell you he couldn't have written such a note,' cried Flambeau. "'The note is utterly wrong about the facts, and, innocent or guilty, Dr. Hirsch knew all about the facts.' "'The man who wrote that note knew all about the facts,' said his clerical companion soberly. "'He could never have got em so wrong without knowing about em. "'You have to know an awful lot to be wrong on every subject. "'Like the devil.' "'Do you mean—' I mean a man telling lies on chance would have told some of the truth, said his friend firmly. Suppose someone sent you to find a house with a green door and a blue blind, with a front garden but no back garden, with a dog but no cat, and where they drank coffee but not tea. You would say, if you found no such house, that it was all made up. But I say no. I say if you found a house where the door was blue and the blind green, where there was a back garden and no front garden, where cats were common and dogs instantly shot, where tea was drunk in quarts and coffee forbidden, then you would know that you had found the house. The man must have known that particular house to be so accurately inaccurate. But what could it mean? demanded the diner opposite. I can't conceive, said Brown. I don't understand this Hirsch affair at all. As long as it was only the left drawer instead of the right, and red ink instead of black. I thought it must be the chance blunders of a forger, as you say. But three is a mystical number. It finishes things. It finishes this, that the direction about the drawer, the colour of the ink, the colour of the envelope, should none of them be right by accident, that can't be a coincidence. It wasn't. What was it then? Treason? asked Flambeau, resuming his dinner. I don't know that either answered Brown, with a face of blank bewilderment. The only thing I can think of—well, I never understood the Dreyfus case. I can always grasp moral evidence easier than the other sorts. I go by a man's eyes and voice, don't you know, 
and whether his family seems happy, and by what subjects he chooses and avoids. Well, I was puzzled in the Dreyfus case, not by the horrible things imputed both ways. I know, though it's not modern to say so, that human nature in the highest places is still capable of being sensual or borgia. No, what puzzled me was the sincerity of both parties. I don't mean the political parties. The rank and file are always roughly honest and often duped. I mean the persons of the play. I mean the conspirators, if they were conspirators. I mean the traitor, if he was a traitor. I mean the men who must have known the truth. Now Dreyfus went on like a man who knew he was a wronged man. Yet the French statesmen and soldiers went on as if they knew he wasn't a wrong man, but simply a wrong one. I don't mean they behaved well. I mean they behaved as if they were sure. I can't describe these things. I know what I mean. I wish I did, said his friend. And what has it to do with old Hirsch? Suppose a person in a position of trust, went on the priest, began to give the enemy information because it was false information. Suppose he even thought he was saving his country by misleading the foreigner. Suppose this brought him into spy circles, and little loans were made to him, and little ties tied on to him. Suppose he kept up his contradictory position in a confused way, by never telling the foreign spies the truth, but letting it more and more be guessed. The better part of him, what was left of it, would still say, I have not helped the enemy, I said it was the left drawer. The meaner part of him would already be saying, but they may have the sense to see that that means the right. I think it is psychologically possible, in an enlightened age, you know. It may be psychologically possible, answered Flambeau, and it certainly would explain Dreyfus being certain he was wronged, and his judges being sure he was guilty. But it won't wash historically, because Dreyfus' document, if it was his document, was literally correct. I wasn't thinking of Dreyfus, said Father Brown. Silence had sunk around them with the emptying of the tables. It was already late, though the sunlight still clung to everything as if accidentally entangled in the trees. In the stillness Flambeau shifted his seat sharply, making an isolated echoing noise, and threw his elbow over the angle of it. Well, he said rather harshly, if Hirsch is no better than a timid treason-monger. You mustn't be too hard on them, said Father Brown gently. It's not entirely their fault. But they have no instincts. I mean those things that make a woman refuse to dance with a man, or a man to touch an investment. They've been taught that it's all a matter of degree. Anyhow, cried Flambeau impatiently, he's not a patch on my principle, and I shall go through with it. Old Dubosc may be a bit mad, but he's a sort of patriot after all. Father Brown continued to consume whitebait. Something in the stolid way he did so caused Flambeau's fierce black eyes to ramble over his companion afresh. "'What's the matter with you?' Flambeau demanded. "'Do Bosques all right in that way?' "'You don't doubt him.' "'My friend,' said the small priest, laying down his knife and fork in a kind of cold despair, "'I doubt everything, everything I mean that has happened to-day. I doubt the whole story, though it has been acted before my face.' I doubt every sight that my eyes have seen since morning. There is something in this business quite different from the ordinary police mystery, where one man is more or less lying, and the other man more or less telling the truth. Here, both men—well, I've told you the only theory I can think of that could satisfy anybody. 
it doesn't satisfy me. Nor me either, replied Flambeau, frowning, while the other went on eating fish with an air of entire resignation. If all you can suggest is that notion of a message conveyed by contraries, I call it uncommonly clever, but, well, what would you call it? I should call it thin, said the priest promptly. I should call it uncommonly thin. But that's the queer thing about the whole business. The lie is like a schoolboy's. There are only three versions, Dubosc's and Hirsch's and that fancy of mine. Either that note was written by a French officer to ruin a French official, or it was written by a French official to help German officers, or it was written by a French official to mislead German officers. Very well. You'd expect a secret paper passing between such people, officials or officers, to look quite different from that. You'd expect probably a cipher, certainly abbreviations, most certainly scientific and strictly professional terms. But this thing's elaborately simple, like a penny dreadful. In the purple grotto you'll find the golden casket. It looks as if, as if it were meant to be seen through at once. Almost before they could take it in, a short figure in French uniform had walked up to their table like the wind, and sat down with a sort of thump. "'I have extraordinary news,' said the Duc de Vallon. "'I have just come from this colonel of ours. He's packing up to leave the country, and he asks us to make his excuses sur le terrain.' "'What?' cried Flambeau, with an incredulity quite frightful. "'Apologise?' "'Yes,' said the Duke gruffly. "'Then and there.' before everybody when the swords are drawn, and you and I have to do it while he is leaving the country. But what can this mean? cried Flambeau. He can't be afraid of that little Hirsch. Confound it, he cried, in a kind of rational rage. Nobody could be afraid of Hirsch. I believe it's some plot, snapped Verloyne, some plot of the Jews and Freemasons. It's meant to work up glory for Hirsch. The face of Father Brown was commonplace, but curiously contented. It could shine with ignorance as well as with knowledge. But there was always one flash when the foolish mask fell, and the wise mask fitted itself in its place, and Flambeau, who knew his friend, knew that his friend had suddenly understood. Brown said nothing, but finished his plate of fish. "'Where did you last see our precious Colonel?' asked Flambeau irritably. He's round at the Hotel St. Louis by the Elysee, where we drove him. He's packing up, I tell you. Will he be there still, do you think? asked Flambeau, frowning at the table. I don't think he can get away yet, replied the Duke. He's packing to go a long journey. No, said Father Brown quite simply, but suddenly standing up, for a very short journey, for one of the shortest, in fact. But we may still be in time to catch him if we go there in a motor-cab. Nothing more could be got out of him until the cab swept round the corner by the Hotel Saint-Louis, where they got out, and he led the party up a side lane already in deep shadow with the growing dusk. Once, when the Duke impatiently asked whether Hirsch was guilty of treason or not, he answered rather absently, No, only ambition, like Caesar. Then he somewhat inconsequently added, He lives a very lonely life. He has had to do everything for himself. "'Well, if he's ambitious, he ought to be satisfied now,' said Flambeau, rather bitterly. "'All Paris will cheer him now our cursed colonel has turned tail.' "'Don't talk so loud,' said Father Brown, lowering his voice. "'Your cursed colonel is just in front.' 
The other two stared and shrank further back into the shadow of the wall, for the sturdy figure of their runaway principal could indeed be seen shuffling along in the twilight in front, a bag in each hand. He looked much the same as when they first saw him, except that he had changed his picturesque mountaineering knickers for a conventional pair of trousers. It was clear he was already escaping from the hotel. The lane down which they followed him was one of those that seemed to be at the back of things, and looked like the wrong side of stage scenery. A colourless, continuous wall ran down one flank of it, interrupted at intervals by dull-hued and dirt-stained doors, all shut fast and fearless, save for the chalk scribbles of some passing gamin. The tops of trees, mostly rather depressing evergreens, showed at intervals over the top of the wall, and beyond them in the grey and purple gloaming could be seen the back of some long terrace of tall Parisian houses, really comparatively close, but somehow looking as inaccessible as a range of marble mountains. On the other side of the lane rang the high gilt railings of a gloomy park. Flambeau was looking round him in rather a weird way. "'Do you know,' he said, "'there is something about this place that—' "'Hello,' called out the Duke sharply. "'That fellow's disappeared, vanished like a blasted fairy.' "'He has a key,' explained their clerical friend. "'He's only gone into one of these garden doors.' And as he spoke they heard one of the dull wooden doors close again, with a click in front of them. Flambeau strode up to the door thus shut almost in his face, and stood in front of it for a moment, biting his black moustache in a fury of curiosity. Then he threw up his long arms and swung himself aloft like a monkey, and stood on top of the wall, his enormous figure dark against the purple sky like the dark treetops. The Duke looked at the priest. Dubosc's escape is more elaborate than we thought, he said, but I suppose he's escaping from France. "'He's escaping from everywhere,' answered Father Brown. Volon's eyes brightened, but his voice sank. "'Do you mean suicide?' he asked. "'You will not find his body,' replied the other. A kind of cry came from Flambeau on the wall above. "'My God!' he exclaimed in French. "'I know what this place is now. Why, it's the back of the street where old Hirsch lives. I thought I could recognise the back of a house as well as the back of a man.' "'And Dubosc gone in there!' cried the Duke, smiting his hip. "'Why, they'll meet after all!' And with sudden Gallic vivacity he hopped up on the wall beside Flambeau and sat there, positively kicking his legs with excitement. The priest alone remained below, leaning against the wall, with his back to the whole theatre of events, and looking wistfully across to the park palings and the twinkling twilit trees. The Duke, however stimulated, had the instincts of an aristocrat, and desired rather to stare at the house than to spy on it. But Flambeau, who had the instincts of a burglar and a detective, had already swung himself from the wall into the fork of a straggling tree from which he could crawl quite close to the only illuminated window in the back of the high dark house. A red blind had been pulled down over the light, but pulled crookedly, so that it gaped on one side and by risking his neck along a branch that looked as treacherous as a twig, Flambeau could just see Colonel Dubosc walking about in a brilliantly lighted and luxurious bedroom. But close as Flambeau was to the house, he heard the words of his colleague by the wall, and repeated them in a low voice. Yes, they will meet now, after all. 
"'They will never meet,' said Father Brown. "'Hirsch was right when he said that in such an affair the principles must not meet.' "'Have you read a queer psychological story by Henry James, "'of two persons who so perpetually missed meeting each other by accident "'that they began to feel quite frightened of each other, "'and to think it was fate?' "'This is something of the kind, but more curious.' "'There are people in Paris who will cure them of such morbid fancies,' said Vallon vindictively. "'They will jolly well have to meet if we capture them and force them to fight.' "'They will not meet on the day of judgment,' said the priest. "'If God Almighty held the truncheon of the lists, if St. Michael blew the trumpet for the swords to cross, even then, if one of them stood ready, the other would not come.' "'Oh, what does all this mysticism mean?' cried the Duc de Vallon impatiently. "'Why on earth shouldn't they meet like other people?' They are the opposite of each other, said Father Brown, with a queer kind of smile. They contradict each other. They cancel out, so to speak. He continued to gaze at the darkening trees opposite, but Volon turned his head sharply at a suppressed exclamation from Flambeau. That investigator, peering into the lighted room, had just seen the colonel, after a pace or two, proceed to take his coat off. Flambeau's first thought was that this really looked like a fight but he soon dropped the thought for another. The solidity and squareness of Dubosc's chest and shoulders was all a powerful piece of padding, and came off with his coat. In his shirt and trousers he was a comparatively slim gentleman, who walked across the bedroom to the bathroom with no more pugnacious purpose than that of washing himself. He bent over a basin, dried his dripping hands and face on a towel, and turned again so that the strong light fell on his face. His brown complexion had gone, his big black moustache had gone, he was clean-shaven and very pale. Nothing remained of the colonel but his bright, hawk-like brown eyes. Under the wall, Father Brown was going on in heavy meditation as if to himself. It's all just like what I was saying to Flambeau. These opposites won't do. They don't work. They don't fight. If it's white instead of black, and solid instead of liquid, and so on all along the line, then there's something wrong, monsieur. There's something wrong. One of these men is fair, and the other dark. One stout, and the other slim. One strong, and the other weak. One has a moustache, and no beard, so you can't see his mouth. The other has a beard, and no moustache, so you can't see his chin. One has hair cropped to his skull, but a scarf to hide his neck. The other has low shirt-collars, but long hair to hide his skull. It's all too neat and correct, monsieur, and there's something wrong. Things made so opposite are things that cannot quarrel. Wherever the one sticks out, the other sinks in. Like a face and a mask, like a lock and a key. Flambeau was peering into the house with a visage as white as a sheet. The occupant of the room was standing with his back to him but in front of a looking-glass, and had already fitted around his face a sort of framework of rank red hair, hanging disordered from the head and clinging round the jaws and chin, while leaving the mocking mouth uncovered. Seen thus in the glass, the white face looked like the face of Judas, laughing horribly, and surrounded by capering flames of hell. For a spasm, Flambeau saw the fierce red-brown eyes dancing. Then they were covered with a pair of blue spectacles. Slipping on a loose black coat, the figure vanished towards the front of the house. A 
few moments later a roar of popular applause from the street below announced that dr hirsch had once more appeared upon the balcony end of recording the wisdom of father brown by g k chesterton read by martin clifton chapter 4 the man in the passage two men appeared simultaneously at the two ends of a sort of passage running along the side of the apollo theatre in the adelphi the evening daylight in the streets was large and luminous opalescent and empty the passage was comparatively long and dark so each man could see the other as a mere black silhouette at the other end nevertheless each man knew the other even in that inky outline for they were both men of striking appearance and they hated each other the covered passage opened at one end on one of the steep streets of the adelphi and at the other on a terrace overlooking the sunset-coloured river one side of the passage was a blank wall for the building it supported was an old unsuccessful theatre restaurant now shut up the other side of the passage contained two doors one at each end neither was what was commonly called the stage door they were a sort of special and private stage doors used by very special performers and in this case by the star actor and actress in the shakespearean performance of the day persons of that eminence often liked to have such private exits and entrances for meeting friends or avoiding them the two men in question were certainly two such friends men who evidently knew the doors and counted on their opening for each approached the door at the upper end with equal coolness and confidence not however with equal speed but the man who walked fast was the man from the other end of the tunnel so they both arrived before the secret stage door almost at the same instant they saluted each other with civility and waited a moment before one of them the sharper walker who seemed to have the shorter patience knocked at the door in this and everything else each man was opposite and neither could be called inferior as private persons both were handsome capable and popular as public persons both were in the first public rank but everything about them from their glory to their good looks was of a diverse and incomparable kind sir wilson seymour was a kind of man whose importance is known to everybody who knows the more you mixed with the innermost ring in every polity or profession the more often you met sir wilson seymour he was the one intelligent man on twenty unintelligent committees on every sort of subject from the reform of the royal academy to the project of bimetallism for greater britain in the arts especially he was omnipotent he was so unique that nobody could quite decide whether he was a great aristocrat who had given up art or a great artist whom the aristocrats had given up but you could not meet him for five minutes without realizing that you had really been ruled by him all your life his appearance was distinguished in exactly the same sense it was at once conventional and unique fashion could have found no fault with his high silk hat yet it was unlike anyone else's hat a little higher perhaps and adding something to his natural height his tall slender figure had a slight stoop yet it looked the reverse of feeble 
His hair was silver-grey, but he did not look old. It was worn longer than the common, yet it did not look effeminate. It was curly, but it did not look curled. His carefully pointed beard made him look more manly and militant than otherwise, as it does in those old admirals of Velasquez, with whose dark portraits his house was hung. His grey gloves were a shade bluer, his silver-knobbed cane a shade longer than scores of such gloves and canes flapped and flourished about the theatres and the restaurants. The other man was not so tall, yet he would have struck nobody as short, but merely as strong and handsome. His hair was also curly, but fair and cropped close to a strong, massive head, the sort of head you break a door with, as Chaucer said of the millers. His military moustache and the carriage of his shoulders showed him a soldier, but he had a pair of those peculiar frank and piercing blue eyes which are more common in sailors. His face was somewhat square, his jaw was square, and his shoulders were square. Even his jacket was square. Indeed, in the wild school of caricature then current, Mr. Max Beerbohm had represented him as a proposition in the fourth book of Euclid. For he also was a public man, though with quite another sort of success. You did not have to be in the best society to have heard of Captain Cutler, the siege of Hong Kong, and the great march across China. You could not get away from hearing of him, wherever you were. His portrait was on every other postcard, his maps and battles in every other illustrated paper, songs in his honour in every other musical turn, or on every other barrel-organ. His fame, though probably more temporary, was ten times more wide, popular, and spontaneous than the other man's. In thousands of English homes he appeared enormous above England, like Nelson. Yet he had infinitely less power in England than Sir Wilson Seymour. The door was opened to them by an aged servant or dresser, whose broken-down face and figure and black shabby coat and trousers contrasted queerly with the glittering interior of the great actress's dressing-room. It was fitted and filled with looking-glasses at every angle of refraction, so that they looked like a hundred facets of one huge diamond if one could get inside a diamond. The other features of luxury, a few flowers, a few coloured cushions, a few scraps of stage costume, were multiplied by all the mirrors into the madness of the Arabian Nights, and danced and changed places perpetually, as the shuffling attendant shifted mirrors outwards or shot one back against the wall. They both spoke to the dingy dresser by name, calling him Parkinson, and asking for the lady as Miss Aurora Rome. Parkinson said she was in the other room, but he would go and tell her. A shade crossed the brow of both visitors, for the other room was the private room of the great actor with whom Miss Aurora was performing, and she was of the kind that does not inflame admiration without inflaming jealousy. In about half a minute, however, the inner door opened, and she entered, as she always did, even in private life, so that the very silence seemed to be a roar of applause and one well-deserved. She was clad in a somewhat strange garb of peacock-green and peacock-blue satins that gleamed like blue and green metals, such as delight children and aesthetes, and her heavy, hot brown hair framed one of those magic faces which are dangerous to all men, but especially to boys and to men growing grey. In company with her male colleague, the great American actor Isidore Bruno, she was producing a particularly poetical and fantastic interpretation of Midsummer Night's Dream, in which the artistic prominence was given to Oberon and Titania, 
or, in other words, to Bruno and herself. Set in dreamy and exquisite scenery, and moving in mystical dances, the green costume, like burnished beetle wings, expressed all the elusive individuality of an elfin queen. But when personally confronted in what was still broad daylight, the man looked only at the woman's face. She greeted both men with the beaming and baffling smile which kept so many males at the same just dangerous distance from her. She accepted some flowers from Cutler, which were as tropical and expensive as his victories, and another sort of present from Sir Wilson Seymour, offered later on and more nonchalantly by that gentleman. For it was against his breeding to show eagerness, and against his conventional unconventionality to give anything so obvious as flowers. He had picked up a trifle, he said, which was rather a curiosity. It was an ancient Greek dagger of the Mycenaean epoch, and might well have been worn in the time of Theseus and Hippolyta. It was made of brass, like all the heroic weapons, but, oddly enough, sharp enough to prick anyone still. He had really been attracted to it by the leaf-like shape. It was as perfect as a Greek vase. If it was of any interest to Miss Rome, or could come in anywhere in the play, he hoped she would. The inner door burst open, and a big figure appeared who was more of a contrast to the explanatory Seymour than even Captain Cutler. Nearly six foot six, and of more than theatrical thews and muscles, Isidore Bruno, in the gorgeous leopard-skin and golden-brown garments of Oberon, looked like a barbaric god. He leaned on a sort of hunting-spear, which across a theatre looked a slight silvery wand, but which in the small and comparatively crowded room looked as plain as a pike-staff, and as menacing. His vivid black eyes rolled volcanically, his bronze face, handsome as it was, showed at that moment a combination of high cheekbones with set white teeth, which recalled certain American conjectures about his origin in the southern plantations. Aurora, he began, in that deep voice like a drum of passion that had moved so many audiences, will you? He stopped indecisively, because a sixth figure had suddenly presented itself just inside the doorway, a figure so incongruous in the scene as to be almost comic. It was a very short man in the black uniform of the Roman secular clergy, and looking, especially in such a presence as Bruno's and Aurora's, rather like the wooden Noah out of an ark. He did not, however, seem conscious of any contrast, but said with dull civility, I believe Miss Rome sent for me. A shrewd observer might have remarked that the emotional temperature rather rose at so unemotional an interruption. The detachment of a professional celibate seemed to reveal to the others that they stood round the woman as a ring of amorous rivals, just as a stranger coming in with frost on his coat will reveal that a room is like a furnace. The presence of the one man who did not care about her increased Miss Rome's sense that everybody else was in love with her, and each in a somewhat dangerous way. The actor, with all the appetite of a savage and spoilt child, the soldier with all the simple selfishness of a man of will rather than mind, Sir Wilson with that daily hardening concentration with which old hedonists take to a hobby. Nay, even the abject Parkinson, who had known her before her triumphs, and who followed her about the room with eyes or feet like the dumb fascination of a dog. A shrewd person might also have noted a yet odder thing. 
The man, like a Blackwood Noah, who was not wholly without shrewdness, noted it with a considerable but contained amusement. It was evident that the great Aurora, though by no means indifferent to the admiration of the other sex, wanted, at this moment, to get rid of all the men who admired her and be left alone with the man who did not. Did not admire her in that sense, at least, for the little priest did admire and even enjoy the firm feminine diplomacy with which she set about her task. There was perhaps only one thing that Aurora Rome was clever about, and that was the one half of humanity, the other half. The little priest watched, like a Napoleonic campaign, the swift precision of her policy for expelling all while banishing none. Bruno, the big actor, was so babyish that it was easy to send him off in brute sulks, banging the door. Cutler, the British officer, was pachydermatous to ideas, but punctilious about behaviour. He would ignore all hints, but he would die rather than ignore a definite commission from a lady. As to old Seymour, he had to be treated differently. He had to be left to the last. The only way to move him was to appeal to him in confidence as an old friend, to let him into the secret of the clearance. The priest did really admire Miss Rome as she achieved all these three objects in one selected action. She went across to Captain Cutler and said in her sweetest manner, I shall value all these flowers because they must be your favourite flowers. But they won't be complete, you know, without my favourite flower. Do go over to that shop round the corner and get me some lilies of the valley, and then it will be quite lovely. The first object of her diplomacy, the exit of the enraged Bruno, was at once achieved. He had already handed his spear in a lordly style like a sceptre to the piteous Parkinson, and was about to assume one of the cushioned seats like a throne. But at this open appeal to his rival there glowed in his opal eyeballs all the sensitive insolence of the slave. He knotted his enormous brown fists for an instant, and then, dashing open the door, disappeared into his own apartments beyond. But meanwhile Miss Rome's experiment in mobilising the British army had not succeeded so simply as seemed probable. Cutler had indeed risen stiffly and suddenly, and walked towards the door, hatless, as if at a word of command. But perhaps there was something ostentatiously elegant about the languid figure of Seymour, leaning against one of the looking-glasses, that brought him up short at the entrance, turning his head this way and that, like a bewildered bulldog. "'I must show this stupid man where to go,' said Aurora in a whisper to Seymour, and ran out to the threshold to speed the parting guest. Seymour seemed to be listening, elegant and unconscious as was his posture, and he seemed relieved when he heard the lady call out some last instructions to the captain, and then turn sharply and run laughing down the passage towards the other end, the end on the terrace above the Thames. Yet a second or two after, Seymour's brow darkened again. A man in his position has so many rivals, and he remembered that the other end of the passage was the corresponding entrance to Bruno's private room. He did not lose his dignity. He said some civil words to Father Brown about the revival of Byzantine architecture in the Westminster Cathedral, and then, quite naturally, strolled out himself into the upper end of the passage. Father Brown and Parkinson were left alone, and they were neither of them men with a taste for superfluous conversation. The dresser went round the room, pulling out looking-glasses and pushing them in again, 
his dingy, dark coat and trousers looking all the more dismal since he was still holding the festive fairy spear of King Oberon. Every time he pulled out the frame of a new glass, a new black figure of Father Brown appeared. The absurd glass chamber was full of Father Browns, upside down in the air like angels, turning somersaults like acrobats, turning their backs to everybody like very rude persons. Father Brown seemed quite unconscious of this cloud of witnesses, but followed Parkinson with an idly attentive eye till he took himself and his absurd spear into the farther room of Bruno. Then he abandoned himself to such abstract meditations as always amused him. Calculating the angles of the mirrors, the angles of each refraction, the angle at which each must fit into the wall. When he heard a strong but strangled cry, he sprang to his feet and stood rigidly listening. At the same instant Sir Wilson Seymour burst back into the room, white as ivory. "'Who's that man in the passage?' he cried. "'Where's that dagger of mine?' Before Father Brown could turn in his heavy boots, Seymour was plunging about the room looking for the weapon, and before he could possibly find that weapon or any other, a brisk running of feet broke upon the pavement outside, and the square face of Cutler was thrust into the same doorway. He was still grotesquely grasping a bunch of lilies of the valley. "'What's this?' he cried. "'What's that creature down the passage? Is this some of your tricks?' "'My tricks!' hissed his pale rival, and made a stride towards him. In the instant of time in which all this happened, Father Brown stepped out into the top of the passage, looked down on it, and at once walked briskly to what he saw. At this the other two men dropped their quarrel and darted after him, Cutler calling out, "'What are you doing? Who are you?' "'My name is Brown,' said the priest sadly, as he bent over something and straightened himself again. "'Miss Rome sent for me, and I came as quickly as I could.' I have come too late." The three men looked down, and in one of them, at least, the life died in that late light of afternoon. It ran along the passage like a path of gold, and in the midst of it Aurora Rome lay lustrous in her robes of green and gold, with her dead face turned upwards. Her dress was torn away, as in a struggle, leaving the right shoulder bare, but the wound from which the blood was welling was on the other side. The brass dagger lay flat and gleaming a yard or so away. There was a blank stillness for a measurable time, so that they could hear far off a flower-girl's laugh outside Charing Cross, and someone whistling furiously for a taxicab in one of the streets off the Strand. Then the captain, with a movement so sudden that it might have been passion or play-acting, took Sir Wilson Seymour by the throat. Seymour looked at him steadily, without either fight or fear. "'You need not kill me,' he said, in a voice quite cold. "'I shall do that on my own account.' The captain's hand hesitated and dropped, and the other added, with the same icy candour, "'If I find I haven't the nerve to do it with that dagger, I can do it in a month with a drink.' "'Drink isn't good enough for me,' replied Cutler but I'll have blood for this before I die. Not yours, but I think I know whose. And before the others could appreciate his intention, he snatched up the dagger, sprang at the other door at the lower end of the passage, burst it open, bolt and all, and confronted Bruno in his dressing-room. 
As he did so, old Parkinson tottered in his wavering way out of the door and caught sight of the corpse lying in the passage. He moved shakily towards it, looked at it weakly with a working face, then moved shakily back into the dressing-room again, and sat down suddenly on one of the richly cushioned chairs. Father Brown instantly ran across to him, taking no notice of Cutler and the colossal actor, though the room already rang with their blows, and they began to struggle for the dagger. Seymour, who retained some practical sense, was whistling for the police at the end of the passage. When the police arrived, it was to tear the two men from an almost ape-like grapple, and, after a few formal inquiries, to arrest Isidore Bruno upon a charge of murder brought against him by his furious opponent. The idea that the great national hero of the hour had arrested a wrongdoer with his own hand doubtless had its weight with the police, who are not without elements of the journalist. They treated Cutler with a certain solemn attention, and pointed out that he had got a slight slash on the hand. Even as Cutler bore him back across the tilted chair and table, Bruno had twisted the dagger out of his grasp, and disabled him just below the wrist. The injury was really slight, but till he was removed from the room the half-savage prisoner stared at the running blood with a steady smile. "'Looks a cannibal sort of chap, don't he?' said the constable confidentially to Cutler. Cutler made no answer, but said sharply a moment after, "'We must attend to the—the death,' and his voice escaped from articulation. "'The two deaths.' came in the voice of the priest from the farther side of the room. This poor fellow was gone when I got across to him. And he stood looking down at old Parkinson, who sat in a black huddle on the gorgeous chair. He also had paid his tribute, not without eloquence, to the woman who had died. The silence was first broken by Cutler, who seemed not untouched by a rough tenderness. "'I wish I was him,' he said huskily. I remember he used to watch her whenever she walked, more than anybody. She was his heir, and he's dried up. He's just dead. We're all dead, said Seymour, in a strange voice, looking down the road. They took leave of Father Brown at the corner of the road, with some random apologies for any rudeness they might have shown. Both their faces were tragic, but also cryptic. The mind of the little priest was always a rabbit warren of wild thoughts that jumped too quickly for him to catch them. Like the white tail of a rabbit, he had the vanishing thought that he was certain of their grief, but not so certain of their innocence. "'We had better all be going,' said Seymour heavily. "'We have done all we can to help.' "'Will you understand my motives,' asked Father Brown quietly, "'if I say you have done all you can to hurt?' They both stared as if guiltily, and Cutler said sharply, "'To hurt whom?' "'To hurt yourselves,' answered the priest. "'I would not add to your troubles if it weren't common justice to warn you. "'You've done nearly everything you could do to hang yourselves, if this actor should be acquitted. "'They'll be sure to subpoena me. "'I shall be bound to say that after the cry was heard, "'each of you rushed into the room in a wild state and began quarrelling about a dagger.' As far as my words on oath can go, you might either of you have done it. You hurt yourselves with that, and then Captain Cutler must have hurt himself with the dagger. Hurt myself, exclaimed the captain with contempt, a silly little scratch. 
which drew blood, replied the priest, nodding. We know there's blood on the brass now, and so we shall never know whether there was blood on it before. There was a silence, and then Seymour said, with an emphasis quite alien to his daily accent, But I saw a man in the passage. I know you did, answered the cleric Brown with a face of wood. So did Captain Cutler. That's what seems so improbable. Before either could make sufficient sense of it even to answer, Father Brown had politely excused himself and gone stumping up the road with his stumpy old umbrella. As modern newspapers are conducted, the most honest and most important news is the police news. If it be true that in the twentieth century more space is given to murder than to politics, it is for the excellent reason that murder is a more serious subject. But even this would hardly explain the enormous omnipresence and widely distributed detail of the Bruno case, or the passage mystery, in the press of London and the provinces. So vast was the excitement that for some weeks the press really told the truth, and the reports of examination and cross-examination, if interminable, even if intolerable, are at least reliable. The true reason, of course, was the coincidence of persons. The victim was a popular actress, the accused was a popular actor, and the accused had been caught red-handed, as it were, by the most popular soldier of the patriotic season. In those extraordinary circumstances the press was paralysed into probity and accuracy. And the rest of this somewhat singular business can practically be recorded from reports of Bruno's trial. The trial was presided over by Mr. Justice Monkhouse, one of those who are jeered at as humorous judges, but who are generally much more serious than the serious judges, for their levity comes from a living impatience of professional solemnity, while the serious judge is really filled with frivolity, because he is filled with vanity. All the chief actors being of a worldly importance, the barristers were well balanced. The prosecutor for the Crown was Sir Walter Cowdray, a heavy but weighty advocate of the sort that knows how to seem English and trustworthy, and how to be rhetorical with reluctance. The prisoner was defended by Mr. Patrick Butler, K.C., who was mistaken for a mere flaneur by those who misunderstood the Irish character, and those who had not been examined by him. The medical evidence involved no contradictions, the doctor whom Seymour had summoned on the spot agreeing with the eminent surgeon who had later examined the body. Aurora Rome had been stabbed with some sharp instrument, such as a knife or dagger, some instrument at least of which the blade was short. The wound was just over the heart, and she had died instantly. When the doctor first saw her, she could hardly have been dead for twenty minutes. Therefore, when Father Brown found her, she could hardly have been dead for three. Some official detective evidence followed, chiefly concerned with the presence or absence of any proof of a struggle. The only suggestion of this was the tearing of the dress at the shoulder, and this did not seem to fit in particularly well with the direction and finality of the blow. When these details had been supplied, though not explained, the first of the important witnesses was called. Sir Wilson Seymour gave evidence, as he did everything else that he did at all, not only well, but perfectly. Though himself much more of a public man than the judge, he conveyed exactly the fine shade of self-effacement before the King's justice. And though everyone looked at him as they would at the Prime Minister or the Archbishop of Canterbury, they could have said nothing of his part in it, but that it was that of a private gentleman. 
with an accent on the noun. He was also refreshingly lucid, as he was on the committees. He had been calling on Miss Rome at the theatre, he had met Captain Cutler there, they had been joined for a short time by the accused, who had then returned to his own dressing-room. They had been joined by a Roman Catholic priest, who asked for the deceased lady, and said his name was Brown. Miss Rome had then gone just outside the theatre to the entrance of the passage, in order to point out to Captain Cutler a flower-shop at which he was to buy her some more flowers, and the witness had remained in the room, exchanging a few words with the priest. He had then distinctly heard the deceased, having sent the captain on his errand, turn round laughing, and run down the passage towards its other end, where was the prisoner's dressing-room. In idle curiosity as to the rapid movement of his friends, he had strolled out to the head of the passage himself, and looked down it towards the prisoner's door. Did he see anything in the passage? Yes, he saw something in the passage. Sir Walter Cowdray allowed an impressive interval, during which the witness looked down, and for all his usual composure seemed to have more than his usual pallor. Then the barrister said, in a lower voice, which seemed at once sympathetic and creepy, did you see it distinctly? Sir Wilson Seymour, however moved, had his excellent brains in full working order. Very distinctly, as regards its outline, but quite indistinctly, indeed not at all, as regards the details inside the outline. The passage is of such a length that anyone in the middle of it appears quite black against the light at the other end. The witness lowered his steady eyes once more, and added, I had noticed the fact before, when Captain Cutler first entered it. There was another silence, and the judge leaned forward and made a note. Well, said Sir Walter, patiently, what was the outline like? Was it, for instance, like the figure of the murdered woman? Not in the least, answered Seymour quietly. What did it look like to you? It looked to me, replied the witness, like a tall man. Everyone in court kept his eyes riveted on his pen, or his umbrella-handle, or his book, or his boots, or whatever else he happened to be looking at. They seemed to be holding their eyes away from the prisoner by main force. But they felt his figure in the dock, and they felt it as gigantic. Tall as Bruno was to the eye, he seemed to swell taller and taller when an eyes had been torn away from him. Cowdrey was resuming his seat with his solemn face, smoothing his black silk robes and white silk whiskers. Sir Wilson was leaving the witness-box after a few final particulars, to which there were many other witnesses, when the counsel for the defence sprang up and stopped him. "'I shall only detain you a moment,' said Mr. Butler, who was a rustic-looking person with red eyebrows and an expression of partial slumber. "'Will you tell his lordship how you knew it was a man?' A faint, refined smile seemed to pass over Seymour's features. "'I'm afraid it is the vulgar test of trousers,' he said. "'When I saw daylight between the long legs, I was sure it was a man, after all.' Butler's sleepy eyes opened as suddenly as some silent explosion. "'After all,' he repeated slowly, "'so you did think at first it was a woman?' Seymour looked troubled for the first time. It is hardly a point of fact, he said, but if his lordship would like me to answer for my impression, of course I shall do so. There was something about the thing that was not exactly a woman, and yet not quite a man. 
somehow the curves were different, and it had something that looked like long hair. "'Thank you,' said Mr. Butler, K.C., and sat down suddenly, as if he had got what he wanted. Captain Cutler was a far less plausible and composed witness than Sir Wilson, but his account of the opening incidents was solidly the same. He described the return of Bruno to his dressing-room, the dispatching of himself to buy a bunch of lilies of the valley, his return to the upper end of the passage, the things he saw in the passage, his suspicion of Seymour, and his struggle with Bruno. But he could give little artistic assistance about the black figure that he and Seymour had seen. Asked about its outline, he said he was no art critic, with a somewhat too obvious sneer at Seymour. Asked if it was a man or a woman, he said it looked more like a beast, with a too obvious snarl at the prisoner. But the man was plainly shaken with sorrow and sincere anger, and Cowdray quickly excused him from confirming facts that were already fairly clear. The defending counsel also was again brief in his cross-examination, although, as was his custom even in being brief, he seemed to take a long time about it. "'You used a remarkable expression,' he said, looking at Cutler sleepily. "'What do you mean by saying that it looked more like a beast than a man or a woman?' Cutler seemed seriously agitated. "'Perhaps I oughtn't to have said that,' he said. "'But when the brute has huge humped shoulders like a chimpanzee, and bristles sticking out of its head like a pig—' Mr. Butler cut short his curious impatience in the middle. "'Never mind whether its hair was like a pig's,' he said. "'Was it like a woman's?' "'A woman's!' cried the soldier. "'Great Scott, no!' "'The last witness said it was,' commented the counsel, with unscrupulous swiftness. "'And did the figure have any of those serpentine and semi-feminine curves to which eloquent allusion has been made?' "'No, no feminine curves. The figure, if I understand you, was rather heavy and square than otherwise.' "'He may have been bending forward,' said Cutler, in a hoarse and rather faint voice. "'Or again he may not,' said Mr. Butler, and sat down suddenly for the second time. The third witness called by Sir Walter Cowdray was the little Catholic clergyman, so little compared with the others that his head seemed hardly to come above the box, so that it was like cross-examining a child. But unfortunately Sir Walter had somehow got it into his head, mostly by some ramifications of his family's religion, that Father Brown was on the side of the prisoner, because the prisoner was wicked and foreign and even partly black. Therefore he took Father Brown up sharply whenever that proud pontiff tried to explain anything, and told him to answer yes or no, and tell the plain facts without any Jesuitry. When Father Brown began, in his simplicity, to say who he thought the man in the passage was, the barrister told him that he did not want his theories. A black shape was seen in the passage, and you say you saw the black shape. Well, what shape was it? Father Brown blinked as under rebuke, but he had long known the literal nature of obedience. The shape, he said, was short and thick, but had two sharp black projections curved upwards on each side of the head or top, rather like horns, and— Oh, the devil with horns, no doubt, ejaculated Cowdray, sitting down in triumphant jocularity. It was the devil come to eat Protestants. No, said the priest dispassionately, I know who it was. Those in court had been wrought up to an irrational but real sense of some monstrosity. 
they had forgotten the figure in the dock and thought only of the figure in the passage and the figure in the passage described by three capable and respectable men who had all seen it was a shifting nightmare one called it a woman and the other a beast and the other a devil the judge was looking at father brown with level and piercing eyes you are a most extraordinary witness he said but there is something about you that makes me think you are trying to tell the truth well who was the man you saw in the passage he was myself said father brown butler k c sprang to his feet in an extraordinary stillness and said quite calmly your lordship will allow me to cross-examine and then without stopping he shot at brown the apparently disconnected question you have heard about this dagger you know the experts say the crime was committed with a short blade a short blade assented brown nodding solemnly like an owl but a very long hilt before the audience could quite dismiss the idea that the priest had really seen himself doing murder with a short dagger with a long hilt which seemed somehow to make it more horrible he had himself hurried on to explain i mean daggers aren't the only things with short blades spears have short blades and spears catch at the end of the steel just like daggers if they're that sort of fancy spear they had in theatres like the spear poor old parkinson killed his wife with just when she had sent for me to settle their family troubles and i came just too late god forgive me but he died penitent he died of being penitent he couldn't bear what he had done the general impression in court was that the little priest who was gobbling away had literally gone mad in the box but the judge still looked at him with bright and steady eyes of interest and the counsel for the defence went on with his questions unperturbed if parkinson did it with that pantomime spear said butler he must have thrust from four yards away how do you account for signs of struggle like the dress dragged off the shoulder he had slipped into treating his mere witness as an expert but no one noticed it now the poor lady's dress was torn said the witness because it was caught in a panel that slid to just behind her she struggled to free herself and as she did so, Parkinson came out of the prisoner's room and lunged with the spear. "'A panel?' repeated the barrister in a curious voice. "'It was a looking-glass on the other side,' explained Father Brown. "'When I was in the dressing-room, I noticed that some of them could probably be slid out into the passage.' There was another vast and unnatural silence, and this time it was the judge who spoke. "'So you really mean that when you look down that passage, the man you saw was yourself, in a mirror. Yes, my lord, that's what I was trying to say, said Brown. But they asked me for the shape, and our hats have corners just like horns, and so... The judge leaned forward, his old eyes yet more brilliant, and said in specially distinct tones, Do you really mean to say that when Sir Wilson Seymour saw that wild what-you-call-him-with-curves-and-a-woman's-hair-and-a-man's-trousers, what he saw was sir wilson seymour yes my lord said father brown and you mean to say that when captain cutler saw that chimpanzee with humped shoulders and hogs bristles he simply saw himself yes my lord the judge leaned back in his chair with a luxuriance in which it was hard to separate the cynicism and the admiration and can you tell us why he asked you should know your own figure in the looking-glass when two such distinguished gentlemen don't 
Father Brown blinked even more painfully than before. Then he stammered, "'Really, my lord, I don't know, unless it's because I don't look at it so often.'" End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.